Shalom, and welcome again to Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and we welcome your comments and suggestions to us at uh, Rabbi Address at JewishSacredAging.com. Thank you very much for giving us your time and joining us today. As you know, these podcasts are designed to uh, look at some of the issues related to our own longevity, the impact of longevity on our congregations, our community, and our families. Um, and it is with great pleasure that we welcome Michael Lieben to the microphone and our TV audience today. Michael is the uh, producer, director, creator of a very, very powerful podcast called Bereaved But Still Me. And um, Michael, welcome. Thank you so much. Yes, I am. And I, I just have to make one one small correction. Uh, I don't produce this. Uh, I'm the host. I edit most of the programs. Uh, we have a producer named Nancy Jensen and an executive producer, executive producer Anna Jaworski, very important to the story, both of them. Uh, most people should know that podcasts are group efforts and without a good team, it's just one person talking. Talk to me about how this began. Well, it began uh, exactly 10 years ago this week. My daughter died. She was 15. And she, among other things, had a significant heart defect, which, by the way, is not how she died. Um, I had been friends over the years because of her congenital heart defect with uh, some people in the olden days of Internet. There were things called listservs. Remember them? I, I do remember them. It, it was kind of like the uh, digital equipment, uh, digital equivalent uh, of a party line. You would write letters into this address, and everybody who were members of the group would see what you wrote, and they would all respond. Sometimes the responses were very cordial, sometimes a little less, but it was a community of about 800 families. And while I was there, I met some very wonderful people, including uh, Anna Jaworski who at some point about well, a couple of years before Liel died, she started her own podcast for families with children with congenital heart defects. And so when she heard that Liel had died and when things had become a little calm, she asked me if I would be a guest on her program, much like I am right now today. And I agreed. And we had a lovely time, lovely conversation. And when it was over, she said, I want to do a, a series on grief, but I'm not bereaved. Would you do it? Would you host a series for us? And I said, well, that's nice. How many do you want? She said, I want 12. I want one a month for a year. And I said, I'll give you three and we'll see how it goes. If I'm still alive after three, I'll give you more. And this January, this month right now, uh, we began our seventh year. So I guess we had something to say. And that's pretty much it. The um, you podcast this how often? Uh, new shows go up every month. I hate calling them shows. I think shows should have entertainers and dancers and comedy. Um, but and each program goes up. A new one goes up every month, right. uh, and they stay available forever as long as we pay to have them archived. Uh, they never go stale. And if you wanted to find something that was appropriate for your uh, position right now. Uh, we can send you to a link and you can just thumb through seven years of programming, six years of programming and find something that you like. So um, what is, so if somebody yeah. wants to look at what, what's the link, uh, that somebody would look at? 
Well, uh, if you have Spotify, just look up Bereaved But Still Me. Now, there's a there's a small hitch. They're all logged now as Bereaved But Still Me. But until two years ago, we were called Heart to Heart with Michael. And we weren't getting noticed by the Bereaved community because we didn't have a, a name that was really appropriate for searching. So we changed it to Bereaved But Still Me. Uh, we're much easier to find. Wherever you get podcasts, you can look us up. Uh, most easily, we're on Spotify, but we're housed almost anywhere. So wherever you listen to this program, for example, you can probably find us. So you, you just mentioned this very interesting term, the community of grief or the grief community um, yeah. or bereavement community. What, what, what is that? Well, you know, uh, one of the really, really nice things about uh, the people I work for, they're uh, an organization called Hearts Unite the Globe. And their original concept was to do a very, very narrow cast program for families who lost children to heart defects. And I didn't think that was a good idea. I didn't want to be like the Grim Reaper. I didn't want to be, you've listened to Anna's show, now listen to mine. I didn't want to feel like I was waiting to catch the people off the other program. Um, so at every opportunity we had to expand the term grief, they went along with us. And it's been amazing. So our first guest that was way off field were was philip proctor from the Firesign theater uh they were a comedy quartet from the 60s 70s and into the 80s i see you smiling right and uh they were four people and by the time i got around to writing letters to philip proctor and david osman they were only two so they each came on and they each talked for one episode about one of the guys who was missing and we realized grief could be the loss of a friend Somebody you worked with for 50 years who you loved more than anybody else, that's grief. And then we had uh, a psychologist come on. She wrote a book called It's Grief. Her name is Edie Nathan. And she said, everybody's grieving something. Everything can be looked at in terms of grief. She said, even a person who suffered abuse as a child lost a dream. Maybe lost a plan for life. That's something to grieve. And mm -hmm. we realized that everybody's grieving something eventually, if not already. And so we opened up and we talk about all kinds of situations of loss. Um, there's a, there's a, we discovered a concept called uh, disenfranchised grief. What if you were in love with somebody, but you can't mourn them publicly? What if it was somebody who you loved, but maybe you were both married? What if it was somebody who you didn't really know, but, and so you had no way to, to pour out grief publicly, but it was there. Uh, there isn't a situation that people can't say that's not grief. And so we found that we were basically opening up to just about anybody. And that I think is one of the beauties of the program is that everyone can relate to us. Uh, you mentioned the disenfranchised grief in a book that I have referred many a colleague to in the last year, um, mm -hmm. the myth of closure by Pauline boss, B O S S. Uh, mm -hmm. which really talks about disenfranchised grief in the terms in, in, as a result of trauma and the pandemic. Mm -hmm. sure. She talks about, and, and, and the thesis of this book really is there's no such thing as closure. Um, yeah, probably. That people talk about, well, you know, get in the, and every clergy person has had this conversation. You know, well, you know, the time passes on and the year of mourning is over, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And her thesis is, yeah, that's all true. That's all nice. There's really no such thing as closure. Talk to me right. about it. 
your experience, both personally and the people you've worked with in the community. How true is this? That's extraordinarily true. In fact, people are, are sometimes scared of closure because if I get over it, I'll lose my loved one. I'll leave him behind. And so our tagline is moving forward is not moving away. Okay. And so what we, our, our main thesis is that if you loved somebody and you've lost that person, you have an obligation to keep that person alive by telling their story to people who maybe didn't know him or her. Uh, constantly telling stories within your family. Bringing, I bring my daughter with me wherever I go. Um, there isn't a place I don't go that I don't think that she's right there next to me enjoying whatever it is we're doing as a group, as a family. Sometimes I'm alone and I just think about her. You can never lose that person. So what you want to do is find a way to move forward by taking them with you. So there's no real closure there. There's a more of an, of an acceptance of what is, an acceptance of the loss. But with that acceptance, you know, you can carry that person wherever you go. And, and that's important because they're alive and still with us as long as we keep their memory alive. And so I think people are scared of closure in that sense. People are scared of, well, if I'm finished with it and close it off, I won't see her again. But she's always there and you can't not feel her presence all the time. So talk to me in that light about the power of ritual. I mean, in our community, we have a variety, yes. a whole series of grief rituals and the Kaddish. Yep. And there was somebody who wrote, I've used this at a Yisker service and other colleagues have as well. And I don't, I don't remember the citation, but the power of ritual and the power of memory. And this rabbi wrote that we are alive as long as there's somebody to say Kaddish for us, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I found to be a I, very powerful statement. I can talk about that because, um, one of the things that a lot of my guests, you know, I live in Israel, but my producers are in both Texas and Arizona. We're a very American based program in terms of our language and in terms of our guests, but we have guests from around the world and they all say the same thing. Well, most of them say the same thing. They say in our society, there's no recognized way of grieving somebody. We have to make it up. No one tells us what to do and they feel lost. And I always tell them, well, that's kind of true for you, but not really for me because, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and I've explained many times uh, on the program, and we did a whole program all about it. Shiva is a thing that is, it's a beginning. It's not an ending of the process, but it's a beginning that's wonderful because it surrounds you by, with friends. It surrounds, it takes away all the things, all the mundane things you need to care about. So you have your time to think about the loved one, to talk about the loved one. Uh, and it allows you to take yourself down as low as you want to go. And then it brings you back up by the end of the week. And it's a wonderful thing. And, and I'm sure you've experienced this. I'm sure you know that by the third or fourth day, when cabin fever is reaching its pitch, Shiva can sometimes be a laugh riot. I mean, you, you tell all these really great stories about the person who's gone and the memories they, they transform themselves. All the memories at the beginning are bitter, and all the stories are filled with anguish and pain. And then they sort of become bittersweet. And by the end of the week, they're sweet because you only tell the good stuff. You only tell the funny stuff. You make sure that you're fashioning all the good memories to send out with all those guests, right? Right. Wow, she was a great kid, this, that, the other thing. Listen to the stories. 
Right? The elbow's autistic. We have some wonderful stories. Um, but can I tell you, if you can, if you can say in one sentence, I found the keys, I, the keys are in the chicken, and that makes sense, then you've got a really good story, right? Um, we have a lot of stories like that. When she was in school in Haifa, um, she was Ima Shel Shabbat. It was Friday afternoon. They lit candles in the classroom, and she suddenly started to burn things on the candles and sing Esh Esh Medura from from Lagba Omer. Oops! But and at the time, everyone was scared. It was a very dangerous situation. But right, it becomes right. a very it becomes a very sweet and funny story. And so, by the end of the week of Shiva, which is just the beginning of a very long process, you're already supported by your friends, by your family. You've got memories locked up in place and ready to roll. And you can begin to take your place and move forward, but you're never leaving someone behind. And that's the beauty of it. And of course, our rituals go longer. This last week, we were uh, we went up to visit the grave on her yard site. And we said to Helim, we came back down. We had a very nice meal together. Usually, it's a group effort. And we invite people. This year, we just kept it within the family. But it's a very moving moment, and it's a day that's just for her. Right. And yeah, we love it. We love it. I wish we didn't have to do it, but we love it. Is there a theology of loss, Michael? I, I don't know. I never thought of it in that terms. I, I don't I don't think a lot of my Jewish practice in terms of theology. I think of my Jewish practice as a way of life. That there life, right? Not death. There's a no, way of life. No, no. The way we do things the way we do things is important. Whether that's theological in nature, I'm I'm not equipped to say. That would be your department, Rabbi, but uh No 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 no, you're very <laughs> equipped to say it. And you know, it's it's um Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying that clearly everything we do is surrounded by some sort of presence of God, right? If we go to the if we go to the grave and we read Psalms to Helim, then we're connecting spiritually with God through that moment and connecting to Liel at that moment. So we have there is that connection. I'm saying I'm not saying it isn't. I just don't know if it's a it's a theology of of grief because Judaism is more a theology of life and how to incorporate your grief into a living situation and how to how to move forward and how to celebrate the memory of somebody rather than wallow in the loss of that person. So I'm I'm not sure. So expanding on what you just said, and especially as a result of the pandemic, where where people have <clears throat> grieved losses in many different ways, not only of people who yeah. they couldn't say goodbye to, yeah. but all kinds of things. And, and, you know, time. I remember talking to somebody about a year and a half ago who we were talking, got into this in a class, and this gentleman turned to me on the Zoom machine, was all on the Zoom machine, and said, uh, you know, Rabbi, I'm, I'm 86 years old. What I, the years, this year and a half that I've lost, I, I can't get back. It's not like I'm 25. I'll, yeah. I've really lost this. And it was a sense of this sense of loss and what you're talking about as well. So I guess I'll rephrase it in saying, is there a way to use loss in a positive way? Because we usually think of loss, oh, as a negative, but can loss be ever a positive? The, the simple answer is yes, loss can be a positive, and I'll explain that. Um, I'm not sure if this is where you're going, but, uh, 
we were in a situation where we didn't want to be there, but once we were there, we needed to do something positive. Okay. And we needed to, we couldn't explain her loss. We couldn't justify her loss and we would never try, but we did save four women's lives that night with transplants. All right. So go ahead about that. And that's very, very important. Um, First of all, happy to announce that Israel, as far as I know, is the first, if not the only country to end age limits on transplants, which means if, well, they figure this, if, if you're 60, like I am 63, and your liver is in reasonably good shape, they're not going to give it to a kid. But if there's an 80-year-old person who can get 10 more years out of it, they'll give it to them. So that works really very well. Um, so what did we do that night? Let me see if I can remember the numbers. A 66-year-old woman received two lungs. A 54-year-old woman received a liver. A 45-year-old woman received a kidney, and a seven-and-a-half-year-old girl, not from the Jewish part of town, received a kidney. One of them also got a uh, pancreas, I forget which. Anyway, uh, there are two amazing stories that came out of that. About a year later, I got a phone call from a woman I did not know, phone number I didn't recognize, sounded like she was older than I am. And she wanted to say thank you, and she needed something else from me. And I realized she was the woman who got the lungs. Mm-hmm. And that every word she said and every breath she took emanated from my daughter's lungs. I, right. s- I still get a little fuzzy about it. Um, and she was very, very concerned. She said she felt terribly guilty that she was alive because someone had died. And I said to her, don't feel guilty. She had died. She was gone. We weren't going to get her back. And after that, we decided to do the right thing with, with as much as we could. And you were the beneficiary of the lungs. So, no, everything's fine. We're not, we're happy to do it. We wish we weren't in that situation, but we're, we're happy to do it once we're there. And she said, my family told me that. The social worker told me that. And my rabbi told me that. But until I heard it from you, Right. I couldn't accept it. So that's that's one story. And the other story is that relations in Jerusalem between the Arab community and the Jewish community are a little bit tenuous. And one morning I got an email from New Jersey from my nephew saying, there's a guy at Pardes Institute. He's the janitor. And we believe that his daughter has your daughter's kidney. Now, what happened? He was at Pardes, and everyone knew his story, and my name came up in the news, and there was a young lady there who was studying who knew my nephew's wife. So she heard the name Lieben and wrote to New Jersey to find out if it was me, and then I got in touch with Hussein. And he said, if you don't come to visit us, we're coming to see you. Okay. Now, nobody in my family wanted to go, but I desperately wanted to go. I desperately wanted to meet them and see that girl. And I said, uh, I'm a filmmaker. Can I bring a cameraman? And they said, yes. So my cameraman knew a little bit of Arabic. I knew very little Arabic. The mother spoke a little bit of Hebrew and the father spoke a little bit of English. And there were other children around who spoke different degrees of everything. And we went. 
And we met the seven and, and well, by then she was eight and a half year old girl. And I hugged her. And at that moment, my kidney and my daughter's kidney were as close as they were when I hugged my own daughter. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, might, I might need a moment. No, no, no. No, it's just, it's, but, but it's, it's the pay it forward concept, but it's, oh, you know, it's like so what you much said. More. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's life. It's, it's life affirming. Very much so. And, um, very, very much so. So in that theology of loss, really, it is a theology of life. I absolutely think so. I don't think if it's a theology issue, it's certainly not about loss. It's about life. It's about living with loss, but continuing with loss is about how to take that loss with you in a way that works for you. Correct. And look, even now, look, so my father died. Excuse me. I don't remember, but I think about 15 years ago. Um, sometimes he's still on my shoulder telling me the same bad jokes he was telling me then. <laughs> No, that's right. No, the, yes. no, wait, no, I'll, I'll, no, no, no. I, I, uh, I have the voices of my father and my mother, depending upon the circumstance. There uh, you go. And you know, and they're there. They're always. You could spend always. thousands of dollars in therapy trying to get rid of those voices. There, you just learn how to listen to them differently. Uh, but they're always there. Exactly. I mean, they're always, they're always there. You know, uh, every time I put something back that doesn't belong at the same place, because well, I'll just put it there. My father, who was in business and knew his way around tools and stuff, I hear in that dulcet tone, Richard, it doesn't belong there. Put it back uh, where it belongs. I mean, I, I hear it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know? For sure. And the voices of my mother, we don't have that time for. So, um, <laughs> If you know what I mean. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, my mom is ninety six and still with us, but I, I, I do know what you mean. I hear my dad all the time. Yeah. Uh, Liel never talked very much, being autistic, but I, I feel her presence all the time. I can, I can hear things that she said oh, yeah. uh, when she said them, and I can relive moments with her. I can relive her bat mitzvah. I can relive the day we brought her to live up north. I can, I can. Relive all kinds of moments. It, you know, you know. I think Kurt Vonnegut Jr. really had it right that you can become unstuck in time, and you can visit places in the. Well, he had past and future, but you can visit the past regularly, and what happened there is still happening there. Yeah. Okay. So I can visit moments with Liel and treasure those moments again and again and again, and I don't have to see the bad parts if I don't want to. No, it's and so it just makes everything of, nicer. Yeah, that's you know that's the beauty of the uh, of of memory and hindsight. You can filter out that which you don't want to relive. And I'm glad you brought. I mean, while you you mentioned it, and we should mention the fact that uh, in contemporary Jewish denominational structure, organ donation is a mitzvah, is a modern mitzvah. Absolutely, uh, yeah, there's yeah. still there's a, still a lot of misunderstanding that we don't believe in it. The, all the denominations, Orthodox to humanist Judaism, all say, and it, it's based upon Bikuach Nefesh and saving a life, but because of the technology, all, all the denominations now affirm uh, organ donation. So if this comes up in your family's conversation, please understand that this is part of normative uh, uh, mm -hmm. contemporary mm -hmm. Judaism. 
I, I can, I can go you one better. My brother-in-law, my, uh, my wife's twin sister's husband, he donated his kidney live. Yes. Yeah, so the live donations. Yeah, that's, yes. I am in awe of that sort of thing. I, I, I can't see myself doing it, but I'm in awe of those who can. I, I, I can't just because I'm afraid, but you know. No, no, I just, it is, mm. that's why they're, they're a good, a good, con, a, a, a good contact there, there's, there's counseling that needs to take place because it raises all kinds of issues. It's another story for another time or another podcast for you. Oh, sure, sure. You you have uh, one of the one of the podcasts that I listen to is with your brother who's a rabbi back here in mm-hmm. in, in the United States about yeah. Jewish Jewish approaches and um, I think it was grief in Jewish thought was the title but you talk a little bit about bargaining and ah faith. Uh, yeah and yeah. and so could you just just explore that with me in the within sure. the as you said the bereavement community. This issue Absolutely. of bargaining and faith. Sure, um, I'm I'm the Varba Omro. I'm, I'm quoting my brother. That's okay. But he said in that episode there are different kinds of faith. Now he didn't want to level them one higher than the other. I'm willing to, but he's not. Uh, and he had one that he called foxhole faith, right. which is the faith of the one that most of us think about, which is. Get me out of this and I will be a good person and I will do this and I will do that and I will do that. Save her, keep her alive, and we will do this, that, and the other thing. And the other one, which I think is more practical in, in, in terms of grief, is faith as bitachon, trust. And the idea here is sometimes the answer is no. You can ask for whatever you want. But my faith is that things tend to work out the way they should, whether I like that or not. And that gives me a certain comfort. So the example is, uh, is when we got to the hospital on that Friday afternoon, uh, and she hung on till Monday night. When we got on, on Friday afternoon, we got to the hospital about a quarter to 12 in the afternoon. The doctor took us aside and he said, you've got two choices, bad and really bad. Right. And really bad is that she might wake up. Okay. She'll never smile. She'll never eat on her own. She'll be flat on her back in a bed and you'll be taking care of her forever. And there's no end. There's no end. And that was really bad in his opinion. Uh, I, I took his cue. I understood what he was telling me. And I jumped over all the stages of grief and leaped right into acceptance. Because I knew that my family wasn't going to do that. So my son was off. This was in near Haifa, so my son went off in search of magic rabbis who were going to give us all kinds of things to do and say. Uh, my wife and my other daughter began to read Tehillim, and they were they were praying, all of which is valid. I'm not saying it's not valid. And my son said, you'll see, we're going to bring her back, maybe even better than she was. Maybe we'll take care of autism on the way, but she's coming back. And I said to him, I don't think so, but if you really believe that, there's the wall. I hope you're wearing a helmet, bend down, and run. And when you hit the wall, tell me what it feels like, because it's not something I can teach you. You've got to learn this one on your own. And he said, you have no faith. And I said, well, I have buckets of faith, but my faith is that things tend to work out the way they should. And I see what's coming, and I'm being prepared, and I'll be here to catch every one of you when you fall, which is exactly what happened. 
Um, took three, four days, but one by one, they all fell and I caught them. Um, different kinds of faith uh, for different moments. There is a time and a place for, please God, give me this and I promise to do that. Faith can be transactional, but this isn't. This isn't. This is an acceptance of, well, I've done my best. Right? I've done what I could. I've done the best I know how to do. I don't know how to do anything more than this. Uh, a good doctor is a good shaliach, a good messenger. And if the messenger tells me it's over, I, I know it's over. And you have to, sometimes faith is accepting things you don't want to accept. Sometimes faith is accepting the most difficult things that you never thought you'd hear. But there it is. There it is. One of the tensions that we talk about in a lot of our classes is exactly what this scenario that you just painted. It is a tension between holding on and letting go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I, I, I have come to believe is one of the great, is one of the great challenges, especially as we get older, where the consequences mm-hmm. of holding on and letting go are much deeper than perhaps they were when we were 20. Yep. Um, there will be people who will say, you know, that there's a reason for this. There's purpose in this. Uh, I'm sure not only your story, but every clergy person I know have walked this walk with congregants and members and family members that, you know, is there a reason that God is doing this? Is it just random? How do you find and the people in your own personal experience and the people that you walk with in the, in this community, um, the search for purpose, or is it just Ecclesiastes 1, emptiness, and mm. just nothingness? I didn't spend a lot of time looking for a purpose. Okay. Uh, you could argue the purpose was to save four women that night. Yeah. But I, as a parent, don't really want to believe that I had to sacrifice my daughter for that. Uh, I just believe it was over. Uh she had suffered for a very long time. She had a major heart defect, which is corrected. Poor girl went through three heart surgeries and four catheterizations. She had autism. And in the last year and a half, she went up the epilepsy highway. And that was supposed to be easy. That was supposed to be the one we can all handle. It's just balance. It's medication. What they don't tell you, because there's no reason to tell you, is that up until about the age of 20 plus, there's a thing called SUDEP, sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. Just happens. Can't do anything about it. And we think that's what happened. She started on Friday morning where she was living uh, and would have died that day. Uh, they called the ambulance. They got her to the hospital with some pulse and some blood pressure. And they watched her die slowly for the next three days. I'm not sure that was a favor to anybody, but it was a way to say we did everything we could. Uh, purpose, meaning? Can't think of any. I can't think of any reason that would make me happy to have lost her. But we had been making life and death decisions for 15 years. And so the, the decision to transplant, for example, was a very easy one because it was already post-death. So it was the, people say, wow, you're a hero. How could you make that decision? Cut her up, da-da-da. You know what? Easiest decision we ever made was just do the right thing. There are three really good reasons to transplant. Excuse me for always going back, pulling back to this and to transplants, but there are three really good reasons. One is in Judaism, 
saving a life is like saving a whole world. That's right. good. Number two, uh, there is no better way to instantly memorialize somebody than to have them walking around inside somebody, have them saving a life and being thanked by that person every day who wakes up and said, thank you. I'm alive because of you. And thirdly, any piece of her that can still walk around should walk around. I want to know that she's still alive and vibrant and moving. She's this girl now is 17 and a half. So who knows what she does with her life? You know, she has groups, she has fun. She plays games. I don't know what she does in sports. Who knows? She's 17. Maybe she's got a boyfriend. That's great. You know, so I'm, I'm happy that my daughter is somehow contributing to other people's lives even now. And that's a good thing. Whether that's a reason, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I hope not. But, you know, you, you take what you can do. And you can't make death positive, but you can add positives to it. And that's the theology of life, as we were talking about, and and, and so. really no, and moving on, and 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 cherishing the memory, and and allowing people to move on, and never forgetting. I think those are some of the lessons, and and really, it's the it's the theme in many ways is of bereaved but still me, the podcast that you do, and and uh, yeah. For sure. So, Michael, Michael, I want to thank you uh, very, very much for sharing some of this stuff with us, and and I wish you Has just continued health and success. And thank you so much. And I've enjoyed and, it. Uh, I can't believe it's over. Yeah, I talk a well, lot. No, no. <laughs> you should meet some of my rabbi friends. Uh, <laughs> you know, we I do got twenty minutes in my family. Oh, so uh, that's true. You know, you know, we do twenty <laughs> minutes when the refrigerator light goes on. You know, so. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I, I have an affinity for rabbis. It's all, it's all good. <laughs> nah, so do I. So listen, you just take care of yourself, Thank stay you. healthy, and, and, Thank and you so much. keep Israel honest for us over here. So uh, Me? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> just say Hineni, and you never know. You never know. You never know. <laughs> I, but anyway. I, I want to quote a Star Trek movie for a minute. I, I think the universe owes me one. <laughs> yeah. Well, another Torah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm good. Okay, Michael, thank you very much and very much. To all of you, I want to thank you again for your time and joining us here today on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Again, if you'd like to uh, help support our work in these podcasts, please go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Click on the donate button and we appreciate your support. Um, again, you can contact me at rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. And a big shout out to our producer, Steve Lubetkin. Uh, these podcasts are produced at Lubetkin Media Studios in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thank you very much, Steve. To all of you, until we meet again, take care of yourself, stay healthy, stay safe, and most of all, be kind to one another. Shalom.